Our scripture reading this evening is again taken from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read this evening verses 19 through 39, the last half of the chapter. You can find that in page 1194 in the Pew Bible, page 1194. this morning, verses 19 through 22 in particular, and this evening, our attention will be focused on verses 22 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, let us listen together to this word the Lord speaks to us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the and living way that he opened through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Notice again verses 22 through 25, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting as is the habit of some encouraging one another, and all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this evening. But we'll have to wait just a moment. Most, not the most auspicious beginning of a sermon. Do you hear me? Is it on? Doesn't sound like it is. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? We do say to our students at the seminary that the microphone is a pulpit hazard. So it's not the best way to begin a sermon in terms of, I may, I may have your attention, however. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we look this morning at, at Hebrews chapter 10, and the focus of the sermon this morning was on what I would call the privilege, the great and extraordinary privilege that God in Christ, by the shedding of his blood, has obtained for us as his people. By contrast to what was true of the people of God under the Old Testament economy, for only once per year could the high priest representing the people go behind the curtain to enter into the most holy place, and daily sacrifices for sin and for the guilt of the people were being offered continually as the priest stood before the altar in the holy place, we have obtained, says the writer of Hebrews, in Jesus Christ this extraordinary privilege of being able by the blood of Jesus with confidence, boldness, in the full assurance of faith, we may come and draw near unto God. Now you know and that's the burden of the words of our text this evening. When you are granted a great privilege, when you are gifted in an extraordinary way, that comes as well with a corresponding obligation to make appropriate use of the privilege obtained for you. Now, it's not a very good illustration, and it's perhaps a bit trivial, but Two of my colleagues at the seminary over the COVID period, both of whom are great lovers of the Lyric Opera and also the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, could often be seen in the hallways at the seminary lamenting and decrying the fact that the privilege and joy of being able to go to the Lyric, to the Opera, to the Orchestra was barred to them. No entrance, no concert, 
no opportunity to enjoy what they, not me, but they really enjoy. Now, you can imagine that when it became known that the privilege was being restored, they were Johnny on the spot, ready to get a ticket and to make sure that they would be in person at the next performance. Now, in a far more profound way, the author of Hebrews says, if by the blood of Jesus, God has in Christ obtained for you this surpassing privilege of being able, like a little child, to run with confidence into God's presence, knowing that the way has been made open to you. That comes with a corresponding obligation. And so as we look at this passage this evening and consider that obligation that is ours to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, I would have you notice three things in the passage. First of all, this. Why did the Hebrew Christians need this word of exhortation? I said to you this morning that in chapter 13, he describes the whole of the book of Hebrews as an exhortation, sort of a synonym for our word sermon. And sermons have two sides to them. They have exposition, that is the opening up of what is in the text, and they have application, that is, the bringing of what the text declares to the congregation with its implication for how we should respond to what we've come to know. And that's true also for the author of Hebrews. He spends all the time that he spends on setting forth the glory of the work of Christ as our mediator and what he's accomplished for us by his blood out of a concern knowing the congregation to whom he brings this exhortation, their desperate need of it. You may have heard the expression that, well, that sermon was a preaching to the choir. Those people, that was bringing coals to Newcastle, they knew that already. That was not a word in season. That was a word for someone else or some other kind of congregation. But the preacher, the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows his congregation, his friends in the vicinity of Rome. He knows their need. He knows, for example, as we were reading through chapter 10, I trust you noticed that at verse 32. He recalls the former days when the congregation in the shadow of Rome were told in the 13th chapter to greet the friends in Italy, suggesting that this Hebrew Christian congregation was probably either in the city of Rome or in the vicinity of Rome. He says, you recall, I recall the former days when after you were first enlightened, that is, when the gospel word first came to you concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his work as our mediator. When it came to you, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, 
sometimes being partners with those so treated. Apparently, it wasn't a popular thing to confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. They were mocked. They were persecuted. They were harassed. Some of them were even imprisoned, as he suggests, implies in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. And those in prison here are not just any prisoners. They're likely to have been members who, like them, professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You had compassion on them, and you joyfully accepted, this is rather remarkable, the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, just think about that for a moment. To profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ cost the church of these Hebrew Christians from the very beginning quite a bit. It didn't make them popular. It didn't make them prosperous. As a matter of fact, many of them were dispossessed. Their property was seized. They were cast into prison. But he says, I remember, I recall that you took it in the confidence that though dispossessed, though persecuted, though harassed, you had in Christ a better possession. You were looking, as he says elsewhere in Hebrews, for a new and a better country. You knew you had an inheritance in Christ that was imperishable, that would be kept for you and you for it. So he tells them, I'm mindful, I'm aware of what once was the case. But he also notes that as a pastor, he has a concern, a preacher's concern, that under the circumstances they were now facing and would likely face in the imminent future, notice the language, you may have wondered why he ends at verse 25, with encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Some commentators suggest that the day approaching there may not be the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it might be a day of even greater persecution. Elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, he even uses the language, you have not yet suffered, what? To the point of martyrdom, the shedding of blood. All of this is to say that he knows this is a congregation that had begun well. They had received the good message of the gospel initially with great joy. And they had stood fast in a season of testing. But what about now? What about as they go forward? One of the striking things about the book of Hebrews is that it continually underscores the fact that the Christian life is not, if I may use the analogy, a 100-yard dash. 
you've ever watched the Olympics, and if you turn away from your television set, you're going to miss the 100-yard dash. It only takes round about 10 seconds, and it's all over. That's it. Done. Finished. In a nanosecond. But not so a marathon. That takes several hours, or at least two-plus hours, if you're an Olympic standard marathon runner. Well, the Christian life, he suggests again and again in this passage, is like a race that requires, and he uses that word also in chapter 10, endurance in the course upon which God's people have embarked. That's probably the reason, if you were to look at chapter 12, in the very familiar words at the beginning of the chapter, he uses this language, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. You just pause there and ask the question, if you're going to run the marathon, do you weight yourself down with heavy weights wrapped around your uh, legs? As some people do when they're running in the neighborhood, when they're trying to get uh, good exercise. No, you remove, you Set aside, you put away every weight that hinders you in the running of the race. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then these very familiar words, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the point I'm making, congregation, is this preacher, the author of Hebrews, when he speaks as he does of the great privilege that has been attained for them by the blood of Jesus, he witnesses and takes note of the fact that there were among them some apparently who gave the impression that they would not stand fast, nor would they endure, would they continue to the end. Anyone who's ever run a race knows that it matters not how quickly you get out of the gate. What ultimately matters as that you finish the race. All of this to say the author of Hebrews comes with this word, not only of the privilege that is theirs, but these specific exhortations born out of a pastoral concern that they might fall away, that they might not continue in the course, that perchance, they were at risk of letting their grip loose of what they had first received with joy. And so that brings me to the second thing. Not that he's speaking to the need that he sees in the congregation, the occasion for his word of exhortation, but the specific exhortations themselves. There are actually three of them in verses 22 through 25. The first, I won't say a great deal about it because we 
we ended on that note this morning, but it's the exhortation in verse 22. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The second exhortation is in verse 23. Let us, he says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then the third exhortation is this one, verse 24, let us consider one another. Now, if you are looking at your Bible, you are probably saying, but Dr. Venema, you must have been thrown off by that bad microphone. You didn't read the exact wording. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, the language The exhortation is, first of all, to consider one another. And in considering one another, to consider specifically how we can stir each other up, or as some translations render it, provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now let us look for just a moment at each of those three exhortations. I've already told you on the first, I shall try to be brief. If Christ has, by his blood, done for us something that no priest, no sacrifice, no blood offering under the Old Testament economy could accomplish, purchased our redemption, become by his blood, his flesh, becoming for us not a curtain of separation, but a doorway of entrance into God's presence, then as the English would put it, come through, or alternatively expressed, go through. Who would let loose, fail to take advantage of a privilege so great? There are all kinds of obstacles. There are all kinds of reasons why some privileges are withheld from us in this life. But all of them, as I said to you this morning, cannot be compared to the privilege of being drawn near to God. So whenever opportunity presents itself, whether in worship, whether in a gathering of God's people for prayer and Bible study, in every occasion and circumstance, whether on the Lord's Day or any day, this priceless privilege, lay hold of it, seize it, make use of it, draw near unto God. There's no privilege given among men greater than that privilege. But then the second exhortation, more directly to the point in terms of what I've told you about the congregation of these Hebrew Christians, let us hold fast, the language is strong, sometimes when you shake people's hand as they exit the sanctuary, you get a kind of a limp hand. I don't mean to embarrass anyone. 
they don't take a very firm grip. Sometimes, unhappily, the grip is too firm, and you want to say, ouch. But the language here is very concrete. Lay hold of, hold fast, cling to, do so without wavering, without letting loose. Keep a firm grip on the hope that has been given to you in Christ for the Lord our God. He who promised is faithful. Now that language actually harkens back to language that was used earlier in this epistle. In chapter 6, verse 19, the author of Hebrews has spoken in this way. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Kind of a striking image. A boat or a ship upon the sea, when it throws out the anchor, it wants that anchor to grip something solid and something firm so that the boat doesn't drift, drift, drift away. And perhaps, God forbid, hit the rocks and be sunk. Well, we, says the author of Hebrews in Christ, by his blood, have been given a hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters this hope into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now think about that language in terms of our text. Who has entered for us behind the curtain into the very presence of God himself, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? The hope of which the author of Hebrews is speaking when he says, let us hold fast the confession of the hope, is that hope that is born out of the reality of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, to whom and by whom we are anchored. Matter of fact, in chapter 6, he says that hope is founded upon promise that has a double, you might say, strength. God who is immutable, God who is unchanging, who need not swear by anything other than by himself, because what could he swear by that would be more certain and immutably true than himself? Yet he says, God swore an oath to Abraham and to all of God's people in Abraham and made a promise that was confirmed by his condescension in giving to us this hope that is our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of it all is to say, if Christ has gone before us through the curtain and he embodies our hope, having obtained by his blood access and entrance into the presence of God, why would you not hold fast to him even as he holds fast to you? 
Uh, when somebody has something that's precious to them, they're not going to let you strip it from their clenched fist. Am I right? You ever had a little tussle when you were a child with a brother or a sister who said, it's mine and it's not yours. And they clenched it with the firmest possible grip. You understand what the author of Hebrews is here saying. If you understand my sermon, you Hebrew Christian, the hope that is given us in Christ, not only for today, but for tomorrow, and even in and through death and subsequent to death, for all of our tomorrows, that we will be and are brought by him into the very presence of God so that we may draw near to Him and enjoy life in communion with Him together with all who are His. You're not going to let anyone pry that loose from your grip, are you? Can you think of anything more valuable? You can let go your possessions as you once did, says the author of Hebrews. You can even let go father and mother. Brother, sister, good name and reputation. You fill in the blanks, whatever might be of value to you. And those things are all of great value, but they don't compare to this everlasting hope, this sure and certain hope that is founded upon the blood of Jesus. Even as the author of Hebrews elsewhere says, by the blood of an eternal covenant, by a mediator who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So draw near to God with confidence, wherever opportunity presents itself, by the blood of Jesus. And you, Hebrew Christians, and all Christians, ourselves included, you don't let anything, whatever it might be, to take your eye off of Christ and the inheritance, hope, that is yours in Him. But now that last exhortation is particularly significant because it goes very directly to a problem among these Hebrew Christians. Let us consider one another how to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, when I was a boy, when I read this text, I always thought the language, as is the habit of some, referred immediately to the meeting together. Well, as a matter of fact, it refers to the neglecting to meet together as is becoming the habit of some of you. In other words, they had the same problem in the church in Rome among these Hebrew Christians that we always face in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's far more difficult to continue to meet together Actually, the word he uses here is a very striking word. It's the word synagoguing. It harkens back to their Jewish 
as among the children of Israel practice of gathering, synagoguing, assembling together on the Sabbath day. So don't neglect or fall into a pattern, an ethos, a habit of not meeting together, neglecting to do so. Because don't you know that the purpose of such assemblies is not only to give praise to God, but for the people of God to be encouraged and to encourage one another in love and good works. Now, here I have an analogy. I don't know whether I'm speaking tonight to parents who ever had a child, as I did, two of them, who ran in the cross-country meets and were on the cross-country track. Have you ever been to a cross-country meet? Pretty interesting. You've got to work almost as hard as the runner because you have to meet them along the way. It's a long run, up and down, roundabout, up the hill, down the hill, across the water, all kinds of obstacles along the way. And along the way, you meet them. And what do you do? Exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. You provoke them. You, it's a strong word, paroxysm. It was what Barnabas and Paul did when they had a disagreement. It was a paroxysm. It's like taking someone by the scruff of the neck and saying, come on, man, don't give up. Continue to race. Carry on. Finish the course. I don't know whether you've thought about worship that way. On the Lord's Day, the ministry of the Word of God, the assembly of God's people, the fellowship that we have together, it's crucial to our being encouraged in this long race that is the Christian life. And if you're going to finish the race, then you must not neglect to meet together. Because if you do, You will not be able to provoke and encourage one another to finish the course. If I may extend the analogy, I was struck a couple of years ago when in the newspaper, Chicago Tribune, painful to read, mind you, but the newspaper that is, but the article after the marathon was run annually in Chicago had a little article there and it said, and it had a picture of a race at the, end, at the finish line after the 26 and a half miles, there was a runner who had collapsed in the middle of the street. And two men in blue, mind you, two men in blue, came alongside this runner and each of them took an arm and lifted the runner up and brought the runner across the finish line. Now, isn't that a beautiful image? of what you and I mean to each other when we assemble together and by the preacher's ministry of the word and by our community together, we stir one another up to love and good works. And when we see someone straggling, someone getting off course, someone faltering in the race, we encourage them. We do whatever we can to lift them up, to point them in the direction that they need to go. 
encouraging one another, says the author, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You wouldn't want, if this day approaching is the ultimate coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, be a day where you would be found not in the corpse on which you apparently once embarked. You know, the beautiful thing about this chapter is that it ends on a high note because the God who is faithful, whose promises in Christ are yes and amen, we know that in him we are not of those, says the author of Hebrews, who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are those who have faith and preserve their souls because their souls are preserved. And they're preserved as we draw near to God, as we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, as we consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. May God grant it for his glory and for your and my good. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us in your word and who encourages us to lay hold of the privileges that Christ has obtained for us, not to let loose the privilege of drawing near to you, of holding fast to the hope that is born out of Christ's saving work, and to do so in a way where we meet together in order to encourage to stir one another up in the course, in the pilgrimage upon which we have embarked by your grace. May we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and anticipate the joy that awaits us in the day of his coming. We pray in Jesus' name.